they'll see like a, a squirrel sitting on a trash can and they'll point at it and be like, same. And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> it might be a joke, but some of that's sticking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just love it so much for you if you didn't talk about yourself that way anymore. <laughs> Welcome to episode nine of Find Your Light, the podcast that helps women plus in theater take center stage in lives they love. And I want to start today with a huge holla back at Chelsea Pace and what she has to say about self-talk and self-language. It's not the bulk of what she does, but it came up in the conversation that we were having about her work with her students. And this is something I do with my clients a lot as well, um, is really working on our inner monologue to create a reality that we want. So what I ask you to do, what I encourage you to do, what I implore you to do for the next week or so until the next podcast comes out at least is to really pay attention and listen to your inner monologue. Listen to how you think about yourself. Listen to how you talk about yourself. And if words and phrases come up that you don't want to be true, start to change them because it's in our power. And I know that sounds really hippy-dippy and maybe a little overly simplistic, but it really can be a super powerful change for us to shift from saying things like, I'm a procrastinator, to thank you so much for being patient when I for me to get this thing to you, right? So stop saying stuff that you don't want to be true about yourself. Stop saying things that you wouldn't want to say about your best friend. Stop saying stuff that is mean or nasty or awful or simply stuff that you no longer want to be true about yourself and start replacing that self-talk and that self-language with the things that you do want to be true, with empowering language and language that feels more like what you wish was true for yourself. I'm your host today. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Emily Stamets. I'm a life coach for Women Plus in Theater. And our guest today is incredible. She's Chelsea Pace. She's a Baltimore-based intimacy choreographer, and she co-founded Theatrical Intimacy Education with Laura Rickard. She choreographs and consults on best best practices for staging intimacy, nudity, and sexual violence for professional and educational theater companies and programs across the country. In addition to theatrical intimacy, Chelsea specializes in stage combat, devised work, and physical theater. She's an assistant professor of theater at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and she's currently completing her first book, Staging Sex, which is expected this fall from Rutledge publishing. Now I will put a content warning on this. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious. We talk about the existence of sex and the existence of nudity and the existence of sexual violence in our conversation, but we certainly don't go into any specific details. Um, so this is probably safe for you to listen to, uh, at work. Um, but it may not be safe to listen to around very small children. If you haven't yet had the conversation with them about how sometimes people are naked. All right, here we go. Okay. So Chelsea Pace, (laughs) how did you get started in the theater and what was the journey like from that moment to what you're doing today? So I actually got started in performance as a vocal performance person. And I was determined from a really young age to be an opera singer. And I identified as that. And I was like, that's what I am. And so I studied vocal music through, um, I went to this um, high school that had a really strong vocal music program. And then I went to college for it. And about halfway through college, I realized that spending all of my time in the theater department wasn't really something that was happening accidentally anymore. Um, And for me, it was really a a distinction in process, not so much a dislike of music, but more a like of the process of theater where things were collaborative and happening in the room. And so it kind of started with operettas and then musicals and then like Shakespeare and then more contemporary plays. And then by the time I finished undergrad, I was at the like, no physical theater. Let's make theater in other people's bathtubs, performance (laughs) art, like making stuff in people's basements. Um, And then I took that 
love of physical theater um and which which I think also was kind of being fed um a little bit by my dance background but mostly by my like athletics background I took that and went to grad school for devising and theater making at Arizona State and um I knew I wanted to go into academia. I had some really incredible faculty in the theater departments in my undergrad and in grad school that sort of modeled what professordom would look like to me. And that appealed to me for a lot of reasons in a lot of ways. And um, now I teach at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and my research is in staging theatrical intimacy. I've been doing that for nine years now, which is kind of wild. I don't feel like I can be doing anything for nine years at this point in my life. Um, but that grew out of the physical theater stuff and grew out of the interest in teaching and grew out of the um, interest in just being better people in process together. Um, and so so that's where I am now. I'm a co-founder of Theatrical Intimacy Education with my incredible colleague, Laura Reichard. Um, and we do workshops and consultations and choreography all over the country for professional and educational theater. And that's my research as an academic. Amazing. Okay. I have, I have like so many questions, but let me stick to a few. The first one is sort of, is more of like an observation that I have, I don't know, I've, I've done maybe almost 20 interviews for this podcast. So it's still really early and new in the podcast world. Um, but so many of the people that I've talked to have been divisors have been, and I don't know if that's just like the, the network that's coming to me or if, uh, if we all are actually like divisors at heart, but then you see most of the professional stuff that's being produced on a large scale is scripted and, uh, barely, I don't like the word traditional because like, what does that even mean? Uh, but like is, you know, scripted and like, normal. <laughs> so what is that about? Like how many, yeah. so many of us are like, we want to devise, we want to create new stuff. We want to tell new stories in new ways. And then what, what is done large scale is completely different than that. What's up with that? I think some of it's about the models for success that we have, um, in our industry, right? Like success looks like Broadway, you know, the freshmen come in day one and we say, you know, what do you want to do? What's your goal? Why are you in theater? And they're like, well, I love theater and I want to be on Broadway one day. And that is such an awesome goal for some people. Um, and I think, and, and that's not to say that nobody should have that goal. That's a great goal. But I think there are a lot of other models of success, a lot of other models of what it means to be a theater person that would actually suit people a lot better than that. I mean, to be on Broadway is a very particular kind of life. It's a very particular location that you have to decide you want to live in. Um, and even if just on the basis that New York City is not for everyone, um, you know, but people don't consider that there are other models for success. There are other models of what it means to be a professional theater artist and get up and make stuff every day. Um, because that's the dominant model that we have to refer to. You know, yeah, we have theater, we have so TV. And like unaligned that the, the professional model that we have is so different from what many, 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 many are, maybe even the majority of theater artists are actually drawn to do. That's weird, oh, right? definitely. It's, it's super weird. And I think that the presence of, you know, new theater making and devising and playwriting and self-producing that we're seeing is partially being born out of people who are like, no, that's my model for success. I'm going to make my own thing. Mm -hmm. And partially, I think, born out of a frustration with the lack of accessibility to that other more dominant model of success. You know, I can't get cast in that regional theater thing that I'm trying to get cast in. So I'm going to go do this play reading. And then people find out that like, oh no, that's actually the thing that I love. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that one of the ways we can start to balance that interest versus what's actually present in the profession is by naming models for success early on when people are in training in emerging, um, they're, they're like budding emerging artists. You know, when we, when that student says, I want to be on Broadway, you know, have a conversation about, well, 
cool. Awesome. Why? What's cool about that to you? Mm -hmm. Um, And then saying like, oh, you should also look into this and this and this and this, these ways of making. Um, Not to discourage and not to dissuade, not those things as as secondary um, or, or lesser alternatives, but just as other options for what being a successful artist can look like. Yeah, that's really true too, because in the exposure that so many of us have as we're growing up, our exposure is to um, a lot of, you know, like in high school, a lot of schools do like one straight play and one musical, or maybe they'll do two of each or whatever, some combination of those things. Yeah. Uh, and so that's like, you're like, oh my God, I love this. Like, I love this. And if that's the only model that you see is that very um, sort of standard, like high school model, Was it, there's nothing wrong with that. Like that is absolutely where so many of us start. Um, yeah, interesting. I just, I that just like pop that question popped into my head as you were talking, and I apologize. I didn't mean to like derail the conversation. No, that's was, great. Um, okay, so now you are you have co-founded the theatrical intimacy education. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about that. What what I know you do workshops and you do choreography and stuff, but like, how did that get started? How did you decide to actually create this and codify it? Like, what is it? So it. It started as an interest for me. Um, so I was I was into physical theater and I was into stage combat and I was really into like this movement coaching thing that I was starting to see in productions. And um, I was being cast a lot as an actor in roles that had a lot of physical intimacy or that had nudity or partial nudity in them. And I was like, totally fine with everything that was being asked of me. I was like, sure. Yeah. I'll run around in my underwear for three hours. Like no problem. Like that was, um, great fun. Um, and the thing that struck, that strikes me now is there were all of these questions that I had about that process that I didn't know who was supposed to answer. Um, like I would be in a scene where I would have this like make out with my, husband in the show but like was I just making out with Jason or was like or was like were like our characters making out okay I'm in my underwear but like when should I start doing that like should I just be like always ready to be in my underwear when does that happen and so there was just a lot of lack of clarity Um, And it seems like a lot of intimacy stuff generally was just sort of left up to the actors to rely on their own experience um, to figure it out. And most of the time that seemed fine. Um, But it was curious to me that there didn't seem to be a person for that. So um, then I started hearing from friends of mine around the same time that I was sort of being curious about bad experiences that they were having with scene partners and acting classes, with directors that they were working with. And it just sort of all started started bubbling up this, like, there's nobody in charge of this and that doesn't seem to be working out. Um, And so I started wondering what it would look like to have a process for staging intimacy. Uh, And then it turned into intimacy, nudity, and sexual violence. And just develop a process for it. Um, And as I started futzing around and trying different things and developing a process, I realized that like, oh, I'm sort of interested in this being somebody's responsibility, but I'm more interested in this being something that everybody knows about. Um, especially as I went into academia and started getting interested in going into academia, I, I was being brought in to be a guest artist at theater programs that could afford to have a guest artist. And I was like, okay, cool. I've taught you this intimacy progression and the college that's five minutes down the road that can't afford to bring me in has absolutely no idea about any of this. And so democratizing the information became really important to me. Spreading the information became really important to me. And trying to find a vehicle for doing that was a really, really high priority um, because the progression was being built to be something that was a complete system that was codified. Um, And that took like seven or eight years of like smacking it into situations to see if it worked and making every mistake you could possibly make in staging intimacy and then realizing like, oh, okay, that was bad. Um, but being really active and trying to find 
a method. I feel like I'm not being clear. No, you're super great. No, I'm fascinated. Am I? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Great. (laughs) I feel like I'm telling like four different stories at once. No, it's so good. (laughs) There wasn't somebody in charge of it. I was like, someone should be in charge of it. And then I was like, wait, everyone should be in charge of it. What are they in charge of? Okay. This intimacy stuff. How does everyone do it? Here's how. Let me package it up so I could hand it to somebody and say, you can go do this now. Um, so my so int- it's not just doing the work and codifying it. It's also empowering other people to do the work in the way that is that best fits their budget <laughs> and timeline, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's tools. And the cool thing is when I go into a workshop or I go into someone's rehearsal room or a co- theater company brings me in and I tell them like, here's how you should do X, Y, and Z. Here's how I recommend you do X, Y, and Z. And I teach it to them they, their hands go up and they go, I'm doing some version of this already. And I'm like, that's so cool. That's fantastic. Um, great. Keep doing it. Keep doing that. You know, (laughs) if you want to like call it the thing I call it, call it the thing I call it. If you want to call it something else, that's fine. Um, something I've started saying recently is, you know, they're just tools and what I might use a screwdriver for is to screw a screw into the wall and you may use it to pry open a paint can but the screwdriver is still getting used. I'm thrilled, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in building tools that people can take and bring them into their process, bring them into their toolkits, um, and then pass them along. Because I'm not so interested, and this is, I, I'm not interested in building a sustainable business model of doing intimacy workshops. I'm really interested in giving the people who are already in the room the tools to be better at being in the room so that eventually theatrical intimacy education can put ourselves out of business. Mm -hmm. That is built into our business model is that eventually we put ourselves out of business by giving this information away. Um, That's super great because I've done several shows that had nudity and sexual, like even, even stage kisses that were awkward and uncomfortable for people? Um, Well, so what I would actually recommend in in a situation where you have any kind of awkward kissing is there's actually tools that you can build into your process from day one, whether there's intimacy in your show or not, that give everybody the language for negotiating their boundaries. That's a boundary issue. Mm -hmm. With theatrical intimacy, pretty much everything's a boundary thing. It's either within somebody's boundaries or it's outside of somebody's boundaries. And if it's outside of somebody's boundaries, cool. We can have a plan for that. Um, but but that's a bit, I mean, that's a boundaries thing, right? So if you and the other actors that you were working with had had a tool like the button, um, and the button is a, a word that we can use as actors in place of hold, because hold isn't our word, right? And stop feels like, oh, something has to be a really big deal if I'm going to say stop to another actor. But just like button pushing the pause button. It's intentionally silly. Um, So if you were working together and you were like being snotted upon or the actor playing Melchior was like eating your face or or, or you felt like you were going to sneeze, whatever. You couldn't remember where you were supposed to put your hands. Mm-hmm. Button, hey, where am I supposed to put your put my hands? Button, can we just use a placeholder for the kiss today? Button, can we try another option? Button, um, and it gives you an opportunity to have a conversation about your boundaries in a way that doesn't feel stigmatizing, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't feel like you're being hard to work with by asking about having your boundaries respected. Yeah, and. I think by starting that conversation early in the process to then you're, you're creating that safe space and giving people permission, just like when we share our pronouns, right? It's giving everyone permission to say, these are my pronouns. These are my boundaries. This is what I can and cannot do in this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, so incredibly valuable. And like you said, the, um, how did you phrase it exactly? You said, that everyone you're sort of like going through all these things and everyone's just like relying on their own personal experience. And like, that's a terrible idea. Like, I don't know how many, like I made, I've made out with some boys in my life that I was like, you need some different experience. Like, let's be real. Um, and like, imagine like putting that on stage and someone just being like, or I've only like, I've only kissed one person and that was the person that I married or like, you know, like yeah. relying on personal experience is a terrible idea. It's a really bad idea, <laughs> both 
because it puts a ton of pressure on the actors to have had experience. Um, But also directors, if you say, all right, you two passionately make out with each other and they do something weird. Yeah. What are you going to do? You are left with either, okay, do that again, but better. And now they're (laughs) offended, right? Or like, let me show you which is a boundary mm. issue, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, right? Because then we get at, we get directors that step in to demonstrate because they don't have the language to explain what it is that they're actually looking for. So the work that I do with theatrical intimate education and what my research has been in and what my book is about is like, okay, if you want this stuff to happen, here's the language to ask for it in. That's clear, that's directable, that's recordable. So that stage managers, the heroes of our lives can write it down and make sure that on opening night, when the applause goes on a little longer, that kiss doesn't turn into uh, a three hour makeout because while well, they're still clapping, right? It actually allows you as the director to preserve the story that you're trying to tell while still while respecting the actor's boundaries and while making sure that everything's clear and it's about the story you're trying to tell, not the the past sexual experience of the actors you're working with. Do you have a theory about why this why your piece of this work hasn't been done yet? Why it hasn't been sort of codified in this way? Yeah, I, I think it's because because of actors doing doing that work without complaint. Um, and the reason why it's being done without complaint, um, or at least complaint to the director, it's, we complain about it. Right. Um, but I think a big part of it is because actors are so afraid of being labeled hard to work with because we're told all throughout our training, you have to be easy to work with. The first rule of theater is yes. And, um, you know, you're always auditioning. We hear, we get all these messages about how we have to be easy to work with and what directors we hope mean when they say, I'm looking for actors that are easy to work with. We hope they mean actors that are on time and polite to the stage manager and don't eat in costume and learn their lines and bring new choices and are willing to try things and take direction well. And what actors hear sometimes instead, because they also get these messages about how competitive the industry is and they get these messages about how many people they're going to be up against when they go out and audition for stuff, they start to feel like being easy to work with means saying yes to everything. And by saying no, or hold on a second, we're being hard to work with. Um, And we've seen it in the media, right? Hard to work with is a label that affects like the big stars. And it's something that once you get labeled that way, that sticks with you for the rest of your career, or at least that's what we see in the media, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that because actors have been afraid of being hard to work with, um, or have felt like they just have to say yes to everything, or they're just like kind of down to try Mm -hmm. stuff, um, and that they don't have a particular boundary around intimacy stuff, um, they've covered for directors and choreographers not having a system. Um, They've covered for there not being technique. And long, long ago, before there was a codified method or codified methods for stage combat, I'm sure actors figured it out. They made it work. They found a way to make a slap look real. Um, But just like how now, we would never say to two actors, all right, well, just punch each other. Um, (laughs) Starting to make a shift towards moving away from just kiss each other. Um, And it, it, it's not because there's the same level of like physical danger and like, about, you know, a fist coming towards a face versus a face coming towards another face. I mean, at least I hope. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I think it kind of depends on your scene partner, Mm. but, um, (laughs) but we can have, we can have good technique about that too. We have good technique about everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm having flashbacks to, and I, I'm, awful. I can only remember the name of the show and not the name of the company or the director that it was based on is going to drive me crazy. I'll look it up. Um, but it was called the method gun and it was by a company, I believe that's based in Arizona. Um, and they, it was all based on this director who did codify like a stage kiss into seven moves. Um, 
it's not what the whole show was about, but it was like a big element because then it became this really beautiful like choreography piece. Anyway, uh, but it was like, like arms out, move closer, heads turn, come together. Like it was this very like specific <laughs> set, set of seven things. But then within that, they could, they were like, okay, now do take slow down one and then do three faster. And so it became actually this incredibly flexible tool, even though it was this one like particular way to move in for a kiss with someone. Um, so I don't know. I'm just thinking about that. It was that's sort of like an extreme version because <laughs> obviously well, actually, you don't want every stage kiss to look like exactly the same. But well, but that's actually not too far from how I work in mm-hmm. this. I mean, there are ten ingredients for intimacy, um, and opening and closing distance is one of them, and how quickly we do things is another one of them. And um, so we have these. I mean, it's incredibly technical the way the intimacy choreography gets broken down and the way that I teach it because it's desexualized. Um, it's totally desexualized. We don't grump, grope our scene partners. That's an incredibly rude thing to do to your coworkers, right? Instead, we make muscle level contact with the front of our partner's bodies where we've been given permission to touch today. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, it's that technical, you know, over 12 counts. Um, and so it's a, the actor's job is not to have had a lot of past sexual experience. The actor's job is to use their imagination to fill the world of their character and the world of the play to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it becomes a lot more like dance in that way, right? Mm-hmm. When you're really physicalizing it that way. Um, do you, is there a system of restating that permission before each working session? Yeah. So um, what we have in the work is what we call the boundary practice. Um, It used to be called the physical boundary establishment exercise, which is the worst name anything's (laughs) ever had. Um, Wait, say it again, the physical boundary establishment exercise? You nailed it. It's catchy, right? um, And I used to say in workshops, I'm like, if you can rename it, you win. Like, and we, we, we tried to name it a bunch of different things, but there's also a verbal reinforcement component of it too. Anyway, so in the work that we do in the boundary practice, which just sort of encompasses all of that, in the boundary practice, we show, don't tell first. Um, so we show our partner where we're giving them permission to touch today. Then we take our partner's hands with their permission. We bring their hands over everywhere that we've given them permission to touch today. That's where the button comes back in. Mm. Um, so if I start to take your hands somewhere that you'd prefer your hands not go, because your hands are part of your body, then you would say button. And then we renegotiate where we're going to begin again. Um, and we move through that way. And then you would state my boundaries. Um, because I can make my boundaries as crystal clear as I think I've made them. But if you haven't gotten it, mm-hmm. it's all pointless, right? So instead of me then saying, okay, so you see my boundaries are here and here and here, you actually say, I saw a fence around the front of your chest, the front, the back of your pelvis, your left armpit, and your right ear. Did I miss anything? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's my opportunity then to clarify. So that's the really, really quick and dirty on the boundary practice. And that's something that, that's a tool, once actors have been introduced to that tool, they can then turn to an actor on a production they're doing a year later and say, hey, there's a lot of touching in this scene. Can I just show you everywhere that I'm giving you permission to touch? Can I take your hands over that spot? Let me know if there's somewhere you don't want to touch. Just say button. And then can you tell me where you saw that you're not supposed to touch me? They can take that tool. It doesn't have to be director-led. Um, and then that's a tool that's a part of their practice forever. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I'm sort of like wishing that I had that same practice with my husband because he, his superpower is like touching people on their bruises. Like if you are hurt somewhere, my husband is going to find it. Like, even if he's never touched you before, like he's going to like pat you in that place. It's the weirdest thing. Um, (laughs) That might be good just every morning when we wake up to be like, okay, there's a fence around this. I have a fence. Whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, People think it's funny actually when I'm out with my partner, um, I'll ask you know, if, if I'm talking about the work to somebody and he's there with me, I'll ask him like, may I touch you before I demonstrate stuff mm-hmm. on him? And people always laugh. And I'm like, well, they're like, oh, do you ask him every time? And I'm like, no, but when we're working, I do. And he, and my partner's not an actor. He's a, um, he's an electrical engineer. So he's always <laughs> just like, yes, I'll work. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's really funny. He uses the language when he talks to the dogs sometimes. He's like, all right, I'm closing distance with you. <laughs> <laughs> Your dogs must be so happy and safe. <laughs> they are. They're, they, they're actually, be- they're beautiful monsters. <laughs> they're great. <laughs> they're really, really, really poorly behaved. Oh, I'm having, I'm having more flashbacks. This, all of this conversation is so fantastic. I've never had a conversation this that was this specifically about intimacy in theater. So thank you for having this with me. No, my but pleasure. But I'm coming up, I'm like, oh, and then there was this thing. And then there was this yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that I haven't quite processed yet through this lens. Um, but I'm remembering um, I was early in my teaching career and I was working with a young woman in my high school class. And I started, luckily I had good mentors and I started with the habit of, may I touch you before I ever touch a student, which wasn't even very often. Um, but I think we were doing stage combat or something. And I was, and I asked her, can I touch you? And she said yes, but I could tell so clearly that it was like a big fat no. Um, I don't know. And so I just think that the, like having the more specific, like here is where you can touch me is a much more effective way of doing things. Cause it doesn't push people into that. Like no, you can't. I mean, you could maybe in this one place, but not anywhere. Like it doesn't force people into a yes no. that they, they aren't really sure about. We have, um, we have, a, we play a version of Simon Says about this. Um, and I find it particularly revealing when we're working with a room of educators um, or, or like a mixed room that it's like educators, directors, and some students or some professional actors. Mm-hmm. Um, because we start playing Simon Says and it's, you know, just the regular old rules of Simon Says, touch your head, Simon Says, touch your shoulders, Simon Says, touch your knees. Um, and then we say, you can either do what Simon Says or you can say no and return to neutral. And we're like, we want you to say no. And they're like, okay. And we're like, Simon Says, touch your head. Simon says, touch your shoulders. Simon says, touch your knees. And everyone's just doing it. We're like, okay, Simon says, jump up and down on one foot. Simon says, scratch your armpit. Simon says, pick your teeth. Simon says, and it takes a long time for people to say no. And the first no's in the room are often like, no. Um, <laughs> we're like, well, well, you know, we really want you to say no. And they're like, okay. And we're like, Simon says, pick your nose. And they're like, no. <laughs> um, and so we stop and we say, okay, so what does it feel like to say no? And people are like, well, it's, it makes me nervous. And sometimes somebody says like, I felt empowered by it. Um, but then we ask, you know, what was it like to hear the no in the room? And somebody was like, oh, it sounded like people were being negative or it sounds like people aren't being collaborative or they're, they're being defensive or like no is loaded. No is super, super loaded. Stop is super, super loaded. Hold is even kind of loaded. And I ask actors, I'm like, is no our word or is hold our word? And they're like, no. <laughs> um, so that's what the button's for. We need a word that's not yes, that's not no, that's just give me a second mm-hmm. where, or give me a second when do you want me to do that? Or give me a second, how do you want me to do this? Um, or not today, you know, so we just need a word that gives us a, a little, it's like calling for line, but for physical work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a fantastic tool that I hope people who are listening are going to walk away with and start incorporating. Please steal it. Please <laughs> um, okay, Chelsea, tell us a vivid memory that you have of the theater. Oh, fun. So I just saw a couple of months ago, I just saw The Jungle at St. Anne's Warehouse. Um, and it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, like top five theater things ever. It was it was stunning and physically so incredible and just truly heartbreaking. And I feel like I have a close personal relationship with everyone that was on that stage. And I've, I have no relationship to them, Um, but I, I felt like I, I have carried that show with me every single day since I saw it. Mm. Is there, can you pick out any piece of it that was that particular striking or was it just the, the whole, and there's no way to like explain why or how it had that effect? 
there was there was this moment um, where the narrator character whose name is escaping me and I'd grab it off of my shelf, but I just gave it to a student to work with. So I don't have it behind me right now. Um, where the narrator character is has sort of been guiding the audience through this complicated world with sort of this positive bias of how they're all how it's all kind of kind of working um and there's this moment where he just he, where he stops and explains the, it, it, i mean it's a play, it's a play about refugees but there's this moment where everything in the world just kind of stops it happens a few times in the show but there's this one where everything just sort of stops and he he talks about how he can't go home because the place he's from doesn't exist anymore Mm. Um, and it was just the most striking, simple, powerful thing I've ever seen. And that's a show with a lot of, lot of, um, as, as some of my colleagues would say, uh, flash and trash to it. Like there's a lot of like really spectacular, I mean, there's this big, beautiful flash and trash is the wrong word, but there's this big, big, beautiful, like these huge dance sequences. And there's this like really incredible thing where this bike comes skidding in. And I have, it is a miracle that it doesn't hit anybody, but it's, <laughs> but it's only that, but it's because the actors doing it are so in control of this moment that looks so out of control. Like of all of the moments in the, in the whole play that like ripped my guts out, it was the moment where he just stops and says, you know, Aleppo's not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that spectacle is on Aristotle's list, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and I am theatrically as a divisor, more is more. Um, I had a friend tell me once that my, that my favorite amount of anything was thousands. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. Yeah. Well, I have, to, well, I have one disco ball when you can have seven. I mean, and, so, um, and I, I told her when I'm, especially with the intimacy stuff, you know, I always say, you know, you should, you should know why you're doing it. And I think sometimes people hear that and they think I'm trying to talk them out of doing like gratuitous intimacy or gratuitous nudity. I'm like, no, 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 no. If your reason is I want gratuitous, that's a reason to me. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm here for gratuity, but I, I think gratuity is best served with a side of simplicity. Mm-hmm. 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 I like that. Um, I just made it up. <laughs> really good. We should, I'm writing, that's the title of your next book. Um, what's a challenge that you're facing right now, other than not wanting to write a second book? (laughs) Well, I don't, I don't know if that's a challenge that just feels like, um, a a deeply held conviction that I don't think I'm going to be able to hold on to. Um, (laughs) I think the thing that I'm, I'm finding most challenging right now is the way, I, I think it's the way students are talking and thinking about themselves. Um, I'm finding it I'm finding it really I keep being surprised by being, you know, a reasonable reasonable distance into a conversation about uh someone's work and their aspirations and and where they think their process is and where they're trying to go and what they're trying to do and what they feel like they're achieving. Um getting reasonably far into that conversation and saying something to a student or an actor that I'm working with that's meant to affirm that they're they're heading in the right direction. And I met with sort of a, a, a wall of negativity or like negative self-talk that I feel like might've made it really hard for them to hear everything that came before it. Mm. Do you have an example? Um, yeah, I was talking with a student recently um, who was having a lot of success in being cast and was doing really cool things about um, what they were excited about for the coming year or the summer and um, talking about all of the growth that they'd been having and the things that they'd been doing really well and and where they saw themselves growing and where I saw them growing. Um, and I said, you know, what are you what show are you most excited about for next semester? What project are you most excited about for next year? And they responded that like, oh, well, I'm not right for any of the things we're doing next year. I'm not good enough for any of those things. Um, And it was just, 
surprised because this whole conversation we'd had was all positive about the work that they've been doing and the growth that they've been making. And they were able to fully articulate that conversation and be in that conversation with me while having in the back of their head this idea that it was all for naught. Um, and I think it's also, and this is just sort of like a private fascination of mine, or not private fascination, but sort of a side thing that I'm really interested in is um, the the way students are talking about themselves, particu- particularly college students are talking about themselves um, in relationship to trash or like literal garbage. Like the students are like, oh, I'm trash. Instead of like, oh, I'm not prepared today or, oh, I'm, you know, kind of tired or under caffeinated or over caffeinated. Like I'm trash. And I, and I know it's like kind of a joke. Um, like I'm trash or like, they'll see like a, a squirrel sitting on a trash can and they'll point at it and be like, same. And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> it might be a joke, but some of that's sticking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just love it so much for you if you didn't talk about yourself that way anymore. Um, so, so that's something that I'm finding really challenging right now. I, I realize that that's all about other people and not about me. What's challenging to me? Well, but uh, as, as an educator right. though, right? Like <laughs> as a, as a career educator though, that is, that is your challenge. Like that is part of the mantle that we take up when we choose to be educators. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and another challenge I'm, I'm finding that's, that's maybe more about me, um, is finding time to be in my new city while finishing up big projects that started elsewhere. Um, so I arrived to Baltimore, like with a great problem of being pretty much fully booked for the year in terms of like traveling and, and choreographing stuff and doing workshops and doing gigs. And, um, I was also finishing up and still, still finishing up this gigantic book project. Um, and so I didn't do any, hi, I'm Chelsea. I'm excited to meet you. I'm in Baltimore now stuff. Um, so now I'm almost, almost a year into living here and I haven't like done the introducey thing yet. Um, and so I'm, I'm just interested in balancing that with also just like being a person in my new city, um, my new city that I'm really excited about. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, over two years into my recent move and I still feel like that. (laughs) I still feel like, Oh, I'm just starting to meet people and just starting to make friends. It can be, this, this is a common theme. Um, it can, it is a challenge to make friends as an adult. If you move away from your, like your centered network, if you move away from where you went to school or where you grew up or where you had your first job, it can be a challenge. And and one of the major benefits of being an academic is every time in my life that I have moved, I have moved to a university. I have had like a built-in group of people where they like actually orient all of the new people at the same time in the mm-hmm. same room with a boxed lunch. You know, there's sort of these like built in meeting people opportunities, but I, um, yeah, we had a really incredible social circle in Fargo. And I think, I think part of the thing is I'm putting this pressure on myself to have already kind of been settled in because I'm an incredibly like aggressively social person. Um, like I could befriend us like a cinder block wall. Like I'm like, yeah, new people. I love new people. Um, but I'm, I just haven't had the time. And I think by this point in Fargo, I had met everybody. I knew all the spots. I knew all this stuff. And, and so now being in a, just being in a bigger city with more stuff and it's so awesome. Um, yeah, it's just been a really interesting transition. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thank you for sharing. Um, that question is not about trying to fix it. That sh- question is just about sharing the challenge. <laughs> people are people are great. Time people is hard. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and this generation that's coming up is has a very different youth experience and a very different set of their own challenges um, than even we had, like 
I'm not that much older, but man, it's so different. It's so different. But they're also so amazing. Like they are the, the most amazing humans and I love getting to work with them and I learn so much from them and um, they make me a better, this is so cornball, but they make me a better teacher every single time I talk to them and I'm so grateful to them, but I'm also like, don't you know how great you are? <laughs> yeah. I'm determined yeah. to convince them. It's heartbreaking sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. What is something that you do in your theatrical work that if I applied it in my own daily life, it would make my life better? Ask before you touch people. That's so simple. <laughs> it's, it makes a world of difference. Oh gosh, ask before you touch people and you don't have to make it weird. Just like, may I touch you? Or the way it most often comes up, especially in groups of theater people, ask before you hug people, people, may I hug you? And if somebody says, oh, of course, just say cool and then hug them. Like ask before you touch people, just mm-hmm. do it. It's mm-hmm. great. But it's like the, the conversation we were having just a little while ago about, um, you know, just asking everybody's pronouns. Um, there are often people who I hug often. Um, so when they go to hug me, I say, may I, would you, would you like a hug or may I hug you? And they're like, oh, you don't have to ask me. Um, and I always say, I'm going to ask you every time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always going to ask you. And, and to me, that's, partially because I know and believe and practice that consent is revocable always. Um, and it changes day to day, person to person, and it's contextual. Touch is contextual. Um, and also like, that's something that I choose to model, um, for the people that I'm working with and for the people that I'm just around generally. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's fantastic. There are times I'm I was like, when have, when would I turn on a hug? And for me, actually what it is most often is if it is like an intense situation or an emotional situation. And if a hug is going to be the thing that pushes me over into like super ugly, uncontrollable crying, um, I don't want to hug in that moment. I want to wait until like, like I'm in a safe space where the uncontrollable crying feels okay to do. Um, but that often is the time when people are like, oh, let me give you a hug, make you feel better. And it's like that, oh, it's not actually going to yeah. make me feel better right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 And just, there's, there's I just lots know. of reasons that people might say no to a hug today, you know? Yeah. And also like, sometimes I get hugged by people I don't want touching me. Yeah. You know? And so I would love yeah. the option to say, no, thanks, but I appreciate it. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd love the option to say that instead of having to do the awkward, like, uh, avoid and shake move. <laughs> yeah. The avoid and shake or the like, clearly I don't want to be hugging you hug like that, like mm-hmm. weird physicality that doesn't feel good for anybody. Um, oh yeah. Oh, I've just started avoid and shaking people. Yeah, like, I don't care how close you are. Like you can have your arms halfway around me and I'm like, nobody, nope, nope. <laughs> <We're shaking. laughs> you didn't ask me, bud. <laughs> you just, you kind of just have to stop caring <laughs> about whether or not someone feels awkward. <laughs> But that, you know what, that's really, I want to like give that some space because how often do we allow our boundaries to be crossed because we don't want to make someone else feel awkward. Right. So, and especially with women, um, I think it's more prevalent among women for many reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but just how often do we say, yes, I'm willing to be uncomfortable or I'm willing to feel triggered or I'm willing to be, uh, to feel awkward or unsafe so that this other person or the other people in the room can continue feeling comfortable, safe, not triggered. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that, that all marginalized people are dealing with all the time. Right. And, um, sort of depending on your varying degree of privilege, you may have more or less awareness of it, but I mean, people of color, non-binary people, trans folks, like there's so much pressure to say yes to dominant powers because they often have our lives and livelihoods and oftentimes physical safety in their hands. And so there's a lot of consenting. That's not really consent because consent is dependent on the availability of a no. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I'm 
putting someone in a position where they feel like saying no to me is going to put me in the my, my headspace where I'm like, oh, I'm not going to cast that person. Um, then they're going to be disinclined to say no and more inclined to say yes. Um, and that's, that's not real consent. Yeah. Thank you for bringing, um, bringing up the issue of race and um, gender and all of all marginalized classes of people. Um, it's not just women. It is anyone who's like the non-dominant group in the situation. So thank you. I mean, disabled folks, it's, it's, it's everybody that's not, uh, you know, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you for highlighting that. I appreciate it. Um, okay. Here's the question that I rephrased based on, uh, a response from Shemi Yulu, um, Tapa Petul, who is a incredible trans artist, um, two-spirit artist in working in DC right now. Um, but she recommended that instead of asking, should theater be required life curriculum? I ask, should theater be accessible? So in your opinion, should theater be universally accept accessible to every human on the planet? Absolutely. I think having the all of the arts and humanities accessible to all of the all of the humans would be incredible. Um, I think that talking about theater in terms of a performance art is super valuable, like as a art for art's sake is super valuable. But I also think about think talking about theater skills as life skills is, is super critical. I mean, like ask before you touch people is just as much a life skill as it is a theater skill. Listening when someone's talking to you is just as much a life skill as it is a theater skill, you know, affirming people, um, giving people a space to try stuff and mess up. I mean, that's all theater stuff. Um, but it's just as applicable to engineering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Chelsea, will you please plant a seed in the hearts, minds, or spirits, or all three of the people who are listening today? That's so much pressure. <laughs> it only has to, that's why I'm asking for a seed. I'm not saying like change their life with a message. It's just something that starts off small that could grow into something bigger if they choose to continue nurturing it and thinking about it. You don't have to like be Gandhi in this moment. <laughs> and listen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, no, I don't, but thank you. Um, so, um, something that I've found to be really helpful um, as an educator, but also as an artist is being intentionally positive. Um, and there's a, there's a line between like intentional positivity and like toxic positivity where it's just like, no matter what happens do you, cheer up. Um, so I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about having a positive bias in the room. Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure in our industry and there's a lot of receptivity to critical feedback necessary in the work that we do. And, um, collaboration is inherently difficult and stressful and not sleeping enough, not getting paid enough, um, is stressful. But I think that, being someone in the room that can see something as an opportunity will only serve you and the people that you're working with. Um, and I think that it, it actually makes me at least a happier human by being able to look at something really challenging and say, wow, that's challenging. What an opportunity. Um, and the, the students have actually started I won't say making fun of me for just responding to everything with what an opportunity, um, <laughs> but uh, they've certainly taken notice of it. Um, and positivity is a cult. We're always recruiting um, and finding, <laughs> finding other people that are going to be positive with you, particularly in a stressful process, can make everything better for everyone. So yeah, see challenges as opportunities. That's my seed. Do you have like a specific strategy or tip that has worked for you in bringing that intentional positivity into the room? Yeah. So Jen Sincero mm -hmm. wrote a book called You Are a Badass. Um, I highly recommend it. I tend to just have copies on hand and throw them at graduating seniors. Um, and it's, it's all about like intentional gratitude, like being intentionally grateful, even for the crap. Um, 
and I, there's, there's something it's like around chapter four where it gets a little like higher powery just for me personally. Um, so if that's not your bag, I really recommend pushing through that part. Um, because the point that she makes and the tools that she offers, I think are so valuable. I really highly recommend that book in particular, because there's a lot of, um, like taking control of your life, self-help sort of narrative books that are super hot right now. And a lot of them are focused on the idea of not caring about how things go and just like, you know, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And like, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. Um, but I think there's also a lot to be said for like, no caring deeply, <laughs> um, and, and doing a little bit more, um, no, we, we, we've got this. This is an opportunity. Um, being a little bit more like, no, we, yeah, the universe is benevolent. Yeah. Um, yeah. the, she reads the audiobook herself and it is fantastic. Um, so I highly recommend the audiobook of you are a badass by Jen Sincero. Also, um, I read both the sub, the subtle art of not giving a fuck and the, uh, magic and life giving art of not giving a fuck, which is like, it's, I think I probably am butchering the title, but it's like a play on Marie Kondo's book. Um, and the second one is better. The magical life-giving art of not giving a fuck is like a thousand times better than the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Oh, cool. Maybe because it's written by a woman. So it just has, um, like it just resonated more with me than the other one. Um, the other one just felt like a guy was like, let me write a book in a weekend and see what happens. Anyway. So those are my personal. Well, <laughs> so I haven't read, I haven't read the subtle art of not giving a fuck. You don't have to. Excuse about me. three years ago, I stopped reading books written by men. <laughs> Um, so I've only, written books, I've only read books written by non-binary people and women mm-hmm. for the last like three years now. Awesome. Um, and so when that one came up, I was like, and just sort of skip it. it. But I'll it's read the other one. The other one is really good. It's really good. Um, I did, uh, so I host women's retreats and I um, hired a really wonderful audio designer to put together a playlist. It's all either nonverbal or um, it's all female and non-binary artists. So a lot of nonverbal stuff, but any of the singing, the vocalization is typically female and it's great, but you spend an entire weekend with that, that soundtrack. And then I was like, let me just put on Spotify. And I was like, where are all these men? Like, it's like eight out of 10, like these male voices. What, where is this coming from? Why is it like this? (laughs) It's so when you sort of like surround yourself and create these like feminine artistic creative spaces for yourself, it can be really shocking to go back into like the standard. Yeah. Men are great. Like I married, like married one, men are great, but like also it was so amazing to me to realize how many choices I'd made about the media I was consuming that were like dudes, 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 Mm -hmm. just because that was what was seemed the most available. And when I started consciously choosing to read things by women and non-binary folks, I discovered that I wasn't missing anything. (laughs) Um, I was just choosing a different voice to hear it from. Mm -hmm. And I have, felt really good about that choice. And it's not like a pledge that I'll like never read a book written by a man ever again. I'm sure I will. Um, at this point it's quite the streak, so I don't know what's going to break it. Um, (laughs) um, sort of tight sunk fallacy, but, um, but I've, I've found that I've read things that I don't think I would have picked up and I've loved them so much. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Here's another seed. Read things written by women. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> See what happens. Uh, listen to music by female and non-binary artists. Like fill your your Netflix queue. That's not even a thing anymore. Remember when we used to have Netflix queues? I don't know how old you are, but I used to have like you would go onto the website. I feel like we're probably about the same age, but oh, I and I, so I'm 37. I re- <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm 30. Okay, but I okay, do. Re- I do remember. <laughs> but, but my but I remember Netflix queues. Okay. 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 <laughs> All right. I give you that. <laughs> push my glasses up. (laughs) (laughs) I give you credit for that one. That was so much fun though. Like I kind of missed that. Now you can just have anything whenever you want it. Then it was like, you had to like put it in your queue and then you would wait and it would take like three days to get there even after it shipped. And you'd be like, Oh, I get to watch another three episodes of Oz. (laughs) That was my, like my early adulthood. (laughs) Was Oz or Netflix queues. I watched both. 
but I did watch <laughs> via Netflix because they didn't have everything. So it's like you had to pick whatever they had, basically. And that is right. right now, just FYI. Oh yeah, I have I haven't watched Oz. It's very male. You probably well, that's okay. Again, dudes are fine. (laughs) All right, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Think. What are we watching right now? We watch a lot of like. If I could watch Sons of Anarchy with my husband, I can watch Oz. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're rewatching Game of Thrones right now. I only sort of like dabbled in it here and there as my husband was watching it the first time, and I would just like watch an episode and be like piece it all together. My mom has never watched it. And so we're watching it with her for the first time. That's fascinating. I started watching it like when it was in its second season, I think mm-hmm. somebody, somebody was like, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. You have to watch it because I do stage combat. And they were like, you'll love the fights. And I was like, oh, okay, a sword fighting show I'm in. And I like high fantasy stuff and, or fantasy stuff. And so I was I watched it and I was watching the first episode and the thing happens with the thing in the window and the pushing spoiler free. Right. Um, and I <laughs> actually screamed out loud and I was like, I've read all these books. Yeah. <laughs> this was back before you I stopped would, reading. Like accidentally books. read them. <laughs> I read all of these books and just <laughs> didn't recognize, like I'd forgotten the title or something, but I remembered that moment and I was like, Oh no. And so, um, <laughs> I've been pretty, um, pretty on the Game of Thrones train. Um, so I am, I am caught up. Are you? Uh, and season three, episode eight just happened last night. So for, you know, for time stamping this interview, that season. just happened last night. Season eight, season episode eight, three. Eight. Yeah. I was like, wait a second, because we just finished watching season three. So that's weird. <laughs> yeah, eight, episode three just, just happened in my life. We just, so. uh, we Brenna. just got to the, the red wedding. I'm going to cut this out because spoiler alerts, but we just got to the red wedding with my mom and she was just like sat there the whole time. And she was like, well, we should have known when he was so nice. <laughs> like, obviously he picked a pretty girl for Ed, Ed Mirror to Mary, like, duh. And I was like, mom, this is the episode that everyone was like, ah! and my mother is just, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> the, the wild speculating that's going on in my house right now. Like we watched all of Game of Thrones together and have never been like, what do you think is going to happen next? We've never done that. But for some reason this season, we're like, okay, let's it's talk. Like we're both ends. like, like cracking a beer and we're like, let's fight about this. <laughs> Who's gonna die? <laughs> Everybody. That's yeah. My so that's that's. I'm just preparing myself by deciding everyone's gonna die, and then I have to, as someone who tells stories about violence uh, for at least part of my living, I'm like, and what's the most awful way for that to happen? Yeah. And I'm <laughs> Which is uh, awful. Also equals most satisfying in the context of this show, right? It has sometimes. To be terrible. Sometimes. I'm going to go with maybe always, although there have been some, yeah. some really ooh, ooh. images, but you know. Oh yeah. They stick with you. <laughs> they really do. They really, really do. Um, yep. So that's that. Awesome. awesome. That was the last question. Okay. So the, actually the final question is, um, Chelsea, first of all, thank you so much for your time and energy today, sharing your expertise and your lens. Um, if someone wants to contact you, they want to find out more about theatrical intimacy education. They want to bring you out to consults or go to one of your workshops. How can they find out about you? Sure. So theatricalintimacyed.com is our website, or you can go to chelseapace.com and link there from there. Um, If you want to see lots of pictures of all of my animals, I'm uh, Professor Pace on Instagram. Uh, Yes, please. (laughs) And uh, please, yeah, just tons of dogs. And sometimes my husband covered in tons of dogs. Um, (laughs) And... um, uh, all of my contact, or you can contact me through either chelseapace.com or theatricalintimacyed.com. Um, we also have for theatrical intimacy stuff, if you're interested in our workshops, you can sign up for our mailing list on our website, or you can follow us on Facebook. We post everything on Facebook. Um, theatr- or it's facebook.com slash theatricalintimacyed. Um, and we post all of our stuff about our workshops there. We have workshops coming up in uh, New York and Dallas and Salt Lake City that are of open to the public. A lot of our workshops are hosted by a particular theater company or um, university. So they're not publicly available, but our workshop weekends are. So those are three that we have upcoming right now. Um, There's some others that are secrets still. Um, Lots of secrets. I'm always sitting on a pile of secrets. Um, um, (laughs) The best for you, it's the worst for us. 
It's so much fun for me though. Like whenever I have a big secret, I always tell the students that I'm sitting on a pile of secrets um, just because it infuriates them. Um, so um, yeah, so check us out there. Um, check us out on our, our site, get on our mailing list. We only send out emails when we have things to announce. So we're fairly unobtrusive. Um, and, and that's my show. That's my whole song. <laughs> and that's that. Amazing. Thank you so much. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and I'm excited to stay connected with you and continue following your work and how it grows and where it goes from here. Please, please do. Thank you so much for doing this. This is a really beautiful podcast that you have, and I'm so excited to see where it goes and how it grows. That's all for today. If you want to chat about what you've heard, learn about upcoming episodes before they drop, or simply say hello, follow Find Your Light Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at FYL Podcast or on Facebook at Find Your Light Podcast. Take a second right now to hit that subscribe button and remember to tell your friends how awesome this podcast is so they can subscribe too. If you or someone you know would make a great guest, especially if they are a woman or non-binary person of color or a person with disabilities, email the Find Your Light team, which is currently comprised of me and my co-pilot, Subi the Engine Kitty. You can reach us both at podcast at emilystamets.com. Until next time, stand confidently center stage and enjoy your show.